Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the the idea that you've placed this word in our hands today is a miraculous one. For me, I don't even know how to describe how like otherworldly miraculous this is. So God, I just pray that you would just move in this place and that your Holy Spirit would just settle our hearts um, into the text. Make us understand exactly what you want us to know, uh, what us to learn, walk away from today from this text as we open up our our Bibles, open up our ears, open up our minds and our hearts to exactly what you have for us. As we look at the man Saul, the man Paul, God, what, a, what an amazing study it is on your sovereignty and how much you care for your church and your people. Help us walk away with the treasure trove of all sorts of amazing revelation today. In Jesus' name, all of God's children said, amen. You guys, it's such a privilege. I'm so excited today. Uh, if you guys need to shut this door, go for it. Get up, do whatever you need to do. If it's too distracting or whatever, I, I don't know if anybody else is coming, but they're sure welcome to find a seat. You guys are so um, in for it today. I feel sorry for you because I have so much stuff coming at you guys today. We are unlocking a new a new chapter in Luke's narrative in, in our journey through the book of Acts. As I mentioned, this is a very long journey through the book of Acts, and I'm so proud of you guys and cur- that or have the courage to go through it with me and uh, have joined in week by week and joined in on this journey. And as if you're all caught up, if you're not caught up, go get caught up. But if you're caught up, you are now in Acts 9. And we're going to be looking at the first half of Acts 9. In Acts 9, everything changes because we totally transition. Uh, Luke suspends his account of Peter's ministry and focuses on what we know to be, to mean uh, to, to be the man Paul. His name is Saul at this juncture, uh, but he started off with a man named Stephen. We covered a man named Stephen, and this led to the outward movement of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And then he's talked about a man who was the next big character after Stephen. You guys remember? Philip. Philip was the man who came into the scope. So Luke Luke wanted us to know about Stephen. He wanted us to know about Philip. And now we come to a man named Saul, the man God selected to lead the charge of the gospel going out to the world um, beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And in the greatest irony of of the entire New Testament, in my opinion, is he is the strongest persecutor ever recorded to the Christian church, yet becomes the most important minister. And I'm not just saying my opinion, I'm saying a fact. He's the most important minister in the New Testament. He made such an impact uh, on both sides of the fence. Terrible and beautiful. Tragic and salvitic. Uh, prideful, humble. He's the, the classic case of you and me, aren't we? Uh, we, we, are, we will see us, you will see you in this man today. I promise you. Because Saul, Paul, is so central to the spread of the church in the story of Acts, we should take a little bit, I am so, I'm so all about this, taking a little bit about who he is. You know, we were talking about the big popular thing right now is origin stories. You know, you're not going to be like following somebody unless you have a good origin story of like, hey, where's this guy come from? Where do you get, you know, who are his parents? You know, what town's he from? Back in the, since I'm from Nebraska, the very first question that's ever asked to a person if you live from a small town and you're coming through town, you're stopping at the gas station, you buy your Mountain Dew, the lady behind the counter, she's going to ask you one question Where are you from? 
And then the second question is, who's your folks? That's that's exactly what this is all about. We're going to find out who who his folks are, what town's he from, what's his origin story. So here we go. We know from Paul's own testimony in Acts and later in his letters that he was raised in a little old village named Tarsus. Okay, so Tarsus. Tarsus is a Greek city containing one of the uh, the three known medical schools in his day. Um, in that day, that that's where our medical background um, all originates from. The snake uh, in the in the logo uh, is a Greek is a Greek and Roman origin. Jews were forced to move to Tarsus after Alexander the Great uh, conquered that area. So the, the Jews, he was in a Jewish uh, family. It was featured at times in the history of uh, Caesario, Augustus, Caesar, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra. You're going to hear about Tarsus in history class. It's just a play, it's a mainstay of the Greek empire. Tradition says he was raised by his parents who fled to upper the upper Galilee after the Roman invasion in the first century BC. Do you guys remember 70 AD? Uh, well, that's that's after Christ. There was also an invasion a hundred years prior to Christ, and that's said. His it's believed that his parents fled the city and landed in Tarsus because of that. Paul tells us he was raised as a Pharisee. He was raised as a Pharisee, which means his parents would have followed strict Jewish practices, big time. I mean, over the top Judaism. Uh, he began studying scripture at the age of five. How about y'all? You, you guys do that? You guys do that to your kids? I mean, I can't even get my kids to take piano lessons at, at the age of five, much less studying and memorizing the Torah. Uh, at age 10, he's 10 now, he moved to studying rabbinical teachings. So that's just the, the Judaism thing. That's what people did. At age 13, he had his good old bar mitzvah. Why? Because he's Jewish. He's a total Pharisee of Pharisees, remember? So during his teen years, he would have lived in Jerusalem where he studied under who? Good job. Who said that? Good job. Yes, somebody's listening. Thanks, Nate. Gamaliel was the popular go-to. If you had enough money, you sent your kid to Jerusalem to study under the rabbi of rabbis, Gamaliel. Well, Paul was such a person with such affluency and money that they paid to have him uh, go learn as a 13 uh, as as his 13 to 16 year range he learned under uh, Gamaliel he may have lived with his sister there who Paul says in Acts 23:16 resided in that city as well did you know Paul had a sister nobody ever talks about Paul's sister we don't really know her name but we know that he probably lived with her, kind of like his twin. Like my, I used to have to live with my twin sister. <laughs> you can, you always, you always think, you always go back to your family. Paul also tells us that he was a Roman by birth. Listen to this, which means either his father, or maybe even his grandpa, had been granted citizenship citizenship by the Roman emperor. That's a big deal. Big deal. Y'all, let me show you how big of a deal this is. They would literally take a hide, like a like a really hard, uh, a very thick piece of leather, and they would they would put a piece of parchment in it, and they would literally give you a certificate of citizenship that was rolled up and kept in a really safe place inside of your house. This was granted only by the emperor. So they weren't born Roman. They were they were given Roman citizenship. What's the big deal with that? Oh, it's a big one. It made it basically made, made you invincible to the culture. You were invincible. You were never thrown in jail. You were always given a second chance. You were given some money. You were ever able to walk into a college. You were able to get medical treatment. It was like having the government insurance card that made everything free. He had that. Remember that. That's a huge piece of the story later on. So it brought significant benefits in Rome, including protection from degrading punishment. A, the child of a citizen was granted citizenship if the child was registered within 30 days. So 
after like he was born, they had to rush him in. They had to make sure to get his name on that certificate. Otherwise, he's not a Roman citizen. He's living with a Roman family and he's not a citizen. That's a huge issue. That happened all the time. And the children would be killed and it was nasty. Registered infants received a certificate as a legal evidence of a citizenship. We have birth certificates. It's exact. We're birth certificate. It's a social security number. It's exact same thing in the Roman Empire. It's where we got it was the Roman model. Paul apparently possessed one of these documents, and he may have carried it with him as he traveled in his missionary journeys. He actually did. He pulled it out many times, and it saved his hide. Many, many times. Roman citizens assumed three Greek names. So when as soon as you got like a Roman citizenship, they would tell you what your names are, and you would get three of them. Weird, right? We only have one name. So... They would tell me what my name will be, and I get three three distinct names that I can choose. We know that Paul was given three names. We only know of two of them. Paulus, which was the Greek word for Paul. That's the famous one. And Saul. That's his Hebrew name. It was given to him by the Roman culture, the Roman uh, Empire, to be called Saul, he adopted that name because of what Judaism means to him and his family. So he is now uh, he is now called Saul because he wants to be a Hebrew. He wants to be uh, he wants to be a, he's a Pharisee. Pharisee Jew in and inside and outside Greek citizen, but I'm a Jew and I my name is Saul. Saul was his given Jewish name. So Saul was well-educated, obvious, very intelligent, and trained in critical thinking and argument. Why do I say that? Because you're going to see that. He's crazy smart. Crazy smart. He also spoke at least four languages. I think it's actually six. And perhaps more languages than that. Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. That's How about y'all? I mean, I can't. I can't even. I can barely even say Greek words. Man, I wish I could speak Greek, though. Though his intellect was impressive, his physical stature left something to be desired. So, so check this out, guys. I got to show you this. This is this is so weird. They actually say that his by his own testimony, um, he was a poor speaker. He actually thought himself as a bad speaker. I think he actually was really good, and suffered a physical illness. He said, and frailties. He called him his thorn of his flesh. Some think people think he had a really bad stomach problem. He might have had like some some skin disease. But one thing that is interesting is that he's known to be very short and fat. Why do we know that? Is because in Greek culture, Saturn and Mercury were two of the most popular. Saturn being the most popular uh, uh, or worshipped god in his day. Well, they thought when the Greeks would see him come into a, a city with all of his like um, entourage, they thought he was actually Mercury. This is the this is the best non-naked uh, statue that I could find of Mercury, and it's very inaccurate. Their very first uh, first century form of this idol or this this Greek god. Look it up. He's short, fat. And he he held lightning, you know, he had the, like the wings in his hat and everything. Well, he was short and fat. Well, Saturn, the more prestigious, was tall and muscular and skinny. Well, he didn't ever get called Saturn. He actually his his uh, his companion was called Saturn, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But we know that Jupiter was another tall god as well, and he was uh, he was compared to the opposite of Jupiter as well. So Mercury was, uh, he was always getting mistaked for Mercury because he had special powers that obviously would only come from Mercury. Interesting, right? As he completed his missionary journeys, he suffered persecution to the point of marking his body with wounds, according to Gal Galatians 6.17. So he had some sort of permanent wound that had to be addressed by a doctor while he's doing his missionary journeys. Some people think actually that comes from, be yeah, from Luke. And he actually wrote this, that he was uh, literally beat up so many times that it started taking a toll on his body and he couldn't stop hemorrhaging and 
and there were some serious medical issues uh, as he went along. Now, as we move now to Acts 9, we witness maybe, I think, the craziest conversion in the history of Christianity. In my opinion, craziest. Uh, even Paul himself made this testimony of the events in this story. Multiple, multiple, multiple references over and over again. It made a huge impact in his life. One of the craziest impacts, I think one of the most profound conversions. We can safely assume that Paul gave his testimony as many times as he possibly could to as many people as possible. And almost every time I bet Luke heard him talk about this. This little ish, this little situation that we're about ready to see. The scene is set for Saul's conversion in the first two verses. Somebody read it. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, y'all. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation and the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So Luke's, what's, what's he doing? What's he reminding us of? That Saul hated Christians, man. He was on a mission to demolish them, to, de to eradicate every single one of them, he vowed. We remember how Saul was ravaging the church, as Luke describes in chapter 8. Remember that? He became so focused. Remember when there's Stone and Stephen? He made it his vow to take him out, like his personal vendetta. Speaking of speaking of those those terms, watch out for those personal quick application. Man, you don't know necessarily who you're fighting for. Uh, when you make a personal vendetta, make sure you're not adopting somebody else's vendetta, and it's not Jesus's. Saul has become this so, fo so focused that he thinks he can find and destroy every single person in the region and get rid of this stupid thing called the way. He is he is uh, following the pattern of the Sanhedrin. If you guys real uh, see this, he's giving threats followed followed by murder. Threats, murder. Threats, murder. Sanhedrin did that, didn't they? Threatened Jesus, murdered him. So Paul's saying, well, why don't I just do the same thing? So, but now he's taking it in a matter of his, in his own hands, and he does something even smarter than the Sanhedrin. He goes and finds a loophole in the government, in the Roman, uh, the Roman authorities, and gets them to grant Jewish leadership a treaty that says, I can go drag their butts into Roman jails if I find them violating the Jewish law. Ouch. He's pretty much armed and dangerous at this point. He can't put him to death, but the Romans can. So he goes on a mission with these letters with Roman guards behind him in tow, saying, hey, come with me. Hey, come with me. I heard you're holding the Bible study. You're done. Come with me. Ripping them out of their houses, taking them to Jerusalem, going into jail. They're beat, cat of nine tails, lashes, and then killed most of the time. Malnutrition. You know, they didn't take care of them. Um, the Caesar extended this right over all the Jews in the Roman Empire at that time. So if you were a Jew, you're shaking in your boots, and there's one person leading the charge, Paul. Just Paul. So you can think in your mind, serial killer, enemy number one, is Paul in your mind if you're a Jew. Stay away from this guy. Uh, this was a necessary step since Jewish Christians had fled Jerusalem precisely to avoid the reach of the Sanhedrin and the death of Stephen. This was also a sovereign, sovereign God's choice to instigate and instill and to punctuate a necessary step in the spreading of his gospel. Saul went looking for members of the way. Now, this word, the way, did you guys know where this came from? It's not just some cool little hippie word. It's like, hey, man, the way. No, man, this, this word, the way, came from Old Testament prophets talking about to Israel following the way of Jehovah or the way of the wicked. It's two different ways. There's only two ways. Way of Jehovah, way of the wicked. That's where they just abbreviated it and said, oh, Jesus is the way to Jehovah. Right? 
When Saul found them, he brought them back to Jerusalem bound, which led to beatings and imprisonment and all sorts of crazy stuff. When uh, What kind of reward? This is where I, my question for you guys. It's tantalizing to think about. What kind of reward awaited those who were killed by Saul when they were ushered into the throne room of God? Crazy, right? Second thought, it makes me wonder if Paul's future in heaven will include a glorious reward. Second thought, what kind of reconciliation took place in heaven when Paul's Paul entered the Lord's presence and met those he had killed earlier. Crazy, right? Think about that for a second. You're going to hear me talk about eternal rewards a lot in, in the book of Acts and chapters to come. But I just want you guys to stop real, real quick and take a heavenly view of what's happening right here. What kind of reconciliation would that have been? Oh, man, I mean, there's no tears in heaven. <laughs> but I know there was some serious, powerful stuff happening right there. This trip to Damascus that I'm going to show you guys appears to be Saul's first attempt to track down and retrieve Christians from outside the land. This is a, a road, the road to Damascus in modern day. I mean, it still exists. Uh, here's Jerusalem, Damascus. So he's saying, guys, let's go. Let's go find these crazy Christians, and we're going to demolish them. And he's on his road with his procession, and he's on a mission. Somebody read chapter 9, verse 3 through 7, really nice and loud. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. <clears throat> the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. This is like something straight out of Lord of the Rings or something. I mean, this is, this. you can make a movie out of this. I, I know there's some been bad, some bad movies made about this with some bad budgets. But man, you'd think somebody could make something amazing. Right, right now. But Saul was approaching Damascus, we're told, which I'm I have no reason to believe that it wasn't in sight. So some somewhere around here. Um, and that Saul had uh that me this means that we're told this, this means that Saul had almost made it to his destination, but God intervened in the last moment to redirect him. He's probably no doubt going, Yeah, okay, first guys. I mean, he's calculating this move. Let's go to the Jewish synagogue and take them out. Sound good? And all the Roman guys are going, you bet, sharpening their swords, you know. As Paul tells this story later in Acts, you're going to see, he mentions that even that this even happened at midday. So no doubt that they took off early, early morning, jumped in their Teslas, and uh, drove up there. Uh, but it's about noontime, right? Sun's up, straight up above in the air, shining like suns do, right? Well, we're, set, we're told that there was a light, that the sun was at its brightest in the sky, yet there was a, another light that appeared even brighter than the sun. And it appeared to blind Saul when he looked at it. With the light, was a voice, and with the voice was Christ himself. It wasn't somebody else. It was Jesus. Problem? Saul didn't know Jesus. He didn't recognize Jesus. He's never heard Jesus talk. You know what I'm saying? The voice that's in the light asked Saul, Saul. It says, Saul, Saul. Saul, Saul. Why did he say Saul, Saul? <laughs> you ever notice something about God addressing his people when he's about ready to do something big? He says, Ben, Ben. Isn't that interesting? I just wanted to point that out. He says, Saul, Saul. 
Why are you persecuting me? Whoa, the repeating of that name just like got me this week. It reminds us of how God typically addresses men in a critical moment. So guys, if you're in the middle of the night and you hear God speak your name twice, you better get up out of that bed, fall on your knees, and open up your ears. Because he's about ready to do something. Why? Like Abraham. Abraham. Familiar? Said that, right? Abraham, Abraham. Something kind of big happened after he said that. And the name Saul is written in its Hebrew form. Listen to this. In the text, Luke puts his name, his name as Jesus said his name in Hebrew. So this is a Greek letter, but that one word is Hebrew. What's that mean? Jesus spoke in Hebrew. How did Paul know what he was saying? He knows Hebrew. Interesting, right? So, y'all, if you want to know like what my favorite language is, it's Hebrew because Jesus speaks Hebrew. <laughs> Though Saul never met Jesus personally in his earthly ministries, here we see a personal encounter with the King of Kings and the Maker of Creation, face-to-face -face with Paul himself. This encounter and all that follows later becomes Paul's validation of his apostolic calling and his, his claim to be the least of the apostles, because he never actually walked with Christ in flesh. He saw the Shekinah glory of Christ. You guys remember, if you fast-forward to Revelation, and you see the Christ, incarnate Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords on his white horse, y'all going to see a lot different type of Jesus than that sweet baby Jesus in the manger. says he's got eyes with fire and a sword coming out of his mouth. This is a whole lot different type of Jesus who stands at the right hand of God and he's about ready to act. You know what I'm saying? We talked about this with Stephen. Well, this same Jesus steps in and speaks directly to Paul. Jesus' first words to Saul ask an interesting question. He asks this very interesting question. What is it? Somebody tell me, what is it? What is the question? Why are you persecuting me? What's happening there? Somebody tell me, real quick, this isn't a pop quiz. Why do you guys think he said that to Paul? He wanted to hear what Paul had to say about it. Anybody else? He was persecuting his followers, Jesus' followers. And so it was like he was persecuting him. Ding! Right there. Very, very good. This is a situation where we have in view proof positive that when you persecute followers of Christ, you're persecuting Christ. Wait, what? How, what, what's happening right here? I mean, this is crazy. This statement is understandable in to me two different ways. First, as Saul persecutes Christians, he persecutes the body of Christ. Y'all been heard, you've heard that since you've been a believer, right? The body of Christ. I know a couple unbelievers who've talked to me like, what, what is this body of Christ stuff? Well, this is the body of Christ he's talking about, his body, of which Jesus is the head. We can take comfort in knowing that as we suffer persecution for your faith, that you're actually feeling what Jesus feels with you. Wait, what? He feels what you feel? Yes. Secondly, it reflects that persecution of the church is suppressing of the message of the gospel, which is the word. Say that again. It reflects that persecution of the church is suppressing of the message of the gospel, which is God's word, Jesus. And when the gospel is attacked, it becomes an attack against Jesus, who is the word made flesh. Are you following me? The question is also very interesting to me because it is phrased as a question. You know, when the king of kings who knows everything about you and sustains your breath asks you a question, wait, what? 
He could have said, Saul, knock it off. Couldn't he have? Saul, stop persecuting me. Yet Jesus asked Saul, why does he persecute the Lord? It seems the question was, to me, calculated to shock the tar feathers out of this guy. Saul was zealous for the Lord and for what Saul thought was the truth. By asking this question, the Lord's shock had to just sent chills up his spine. The Lord shocks Saul to consider that he'd actually been fighting against God all this time rather than for him. <laughs> Whoa, Saul's answer can be confusing without proper perspective. He answers this way. What does he say? What's his answer? Back to Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Saul uses this term, Lord, and it confuses so many people. Because what are we talking about? Like, did Paul just put his faith in Christ? Why is he calling him Lord? Well, here's a little snippet that in the Greek, it's actually said that Luke records that Paul said back to Saul, sorry, Saul recorded was recorded saying back to Jesus, Lord. In Greek, it's like you and me saying, sir, like my Lord, I fall, I fall before you. And so he says, who are you, sir? Just like that. And so in reality, the word is commonly used as a respectful term. So he's saying, I respect you. You're obviously like a God or something. And I don't, and I don't know who you are, but who are you? Let's start there. In this context, it seems likely that Saul is using it in this way. After all, if Saul didn't know who this voice belonged to, how would have he have known to call it Lord except in, this, in a generic sense? Like if he would have known Jesus as Jesus, he wouldn't have called him Sir. So... I, get, I, I, I go this way. The fact that the voice originated in the heavens gave Saul an immediate clue that he was hearing a similar situation that he studied and memorized as a five-year-old back in the Old Testament when Jesus would start show up as a Christophany in the Old Testament to, to prophets. He must have been terrified and prostrate as men of the Old Testament often were in these circumstances. They were usually scared spitless. Gideon, you know, you think about Gideon, you think about Abraham, you think about, you know, everybody who, you know, came face to face with the voice of God, Moses, good grief, Moses. Still Saul asked who was speaking because he couldn't make sense of the question itself. I got to get some context. You ever do that with Jesus? Like, wait a minute, I, I know you're calling me to this and I know that I, I'm doing something wrong, but... Let me get some context. But then Saul gets a specific answer from the voice. The voice is the very person Saul has been disparagingly persecuting every single day. His name's Jesus. Without waiting for Saul to respond for what could Saul say at this point. Sorry? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. like... What's he going to say, you know? Like, oops, sorry, Jesus, my bad, you know? He doesn't even wait for Saul to respond. He says, uh, he says, Jesus, it says Jesus gives him instructions. He gives him what to do. Saul was to continue to Damascus, but wait for instructions from this Jesus. Don't you just sometimes really, I don't know, this is apl applicable to you. I know it is with me. When I shut my trap, <laughs> that's oftentimes the, the moment where I'll receive instructions on what to do next. Sometimes I feel like all we do is talk. In the presence of God, have you ever tried this? Try it sometime. I know you got needs. I know we got hurts. I know we got it, man. And you can spew it out there. But maybe give Paul's blind silence a try. 
and see if instructions don't show up. Meanwhile, Saul's traveling companions were speechless. They heard a voice but saw nothing, he said. Actually, later in Acts 22, this is crazy, Paul kind of clarifies this, that they actually did hear something, but it was like, they couldn't, they couldn't make it out. They didn't know what it was. Some people think that they just didn't know Hebrew, but they would have, they would have recognized Hebrew as the language, but it was just mumbling, garbly goo. It was specific to Paul. He was the intended audience. They heard the voice, saw nothing. Only Saul understood what was spoken by Jesus. This fact alone tells us something that I want to dive into for a couple seconds. Maybe it's more than a couple seconds. But it's the sovereignty of God, man. This tells us that Saul did see something, perhaps even Jesus himself. In contrast to Saul, these men saw nothing. So what's that tell us? This begins a study, a deep dive study that goes throughout Acts of God's sovereignty, y'all. It's firmly, it, it's, it's the showcase centerpiece. It's the big deal in this story. God's sovereignty. How are you doing with that? Like if you're listening to me right now, how are you doing with the idea that God's sovereignty is all-encompassing, whether you believe it or not? It's a hard thing to grasp, right? Well, let me give you five, maybe six points that show you what's going on in this story. Number uno. First, the Lord is seen to be sympathizing with his people in persecution. Think about that. Sympathizing? Jesus doesn't need to sympathize with anybody, yet he does. And he does with you. To the point that he himself feels the persecution. Wait, didn't he already feel the feels on the cross? He's still feeling. Why? Because he's not dead. He's alive. Second point, he interrupts the plans of men to preserve his church. He interrupts the plans of man to preserve his church. It's his plan to grow it. And nobody's going to get in the way of that. Nobody. And he does so by turning the chief persecutor, the chief top A-list criminal, into the greatest chief builder. Chief persecutor turns chief builder. Sounds like my life. <laughs> I mean, isn't that your testimony? Third, he takes action in proof of his sovereignty. Third, he takes action without the involvement of any other human agent. He takes action. God himself appears to Saul. What's that all about? He didn't send Michael. He didn't send Gabriel. He didn't send a, 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 a cherubim. Jesus himself goes, hey, Saul, Saul. No ambassador or intermediate inter, uh, priest is required for God to intervene. And I'm not making some big case statement for religion. I'm saying priests are unneeded by Jesus. He chooses to use priests once in a while. Not going to dog that. I'm just saying the sovereignty of God cannot be withheld by man's lack of obedience. It, it, you know, oftentimes, you know what he does? He changes the course of man's plans for his glory. Fourth, God will immediately guide Saul into a new walk of life according to God's purpose. God lays out a new plan for the man. From the start, he lays out the plan. I think sometimes we think God can't handle our plans. I think sometimes we think that we need to tell him what the plan needs to be. Sovereign, sovereign God says he's got the plan. Isn't that got to, that's just got to kind of lighten the load a little bit, right? 
Fifth, Saul is never, <laughs> this is going to ruffle some feathers, man. But I'm just stating the truth here, that Saul, tell me whether or not this rings about. Saul is not given a choice. Why, did, why, why didn't Jesus, Saul never asked if he would like to, he is never asked by Jesus, will you give your life to me on the road to Damascus? He didn't say, will you, will you bow your knee to me? He never said, will you invite me to live inside of your heart? The only question Saul is ever asked is what? Why are you persecuting me? Saul's life had been committed to God's purposes. Look, look at this one. Even before Saul knew who the voice that was speaking to him belonged to. Let that soak in for a second because I don't even know if I get that. Saul's life was committed to God's purposes before Saul knew who the voice was. Woo! Last one. Finally, God is purposely selecting Saul to hear the words while not permitting his companions to have the same experience. God's plan of salvation operates according to His sovereign will and plan. The, this experience impacted Saul both, I want you guys to think about this, spiritually and physically. This isn't just all spiritual talk here. Paul was blinded. I mean, a physical rocking. So are you okay with these things? Like, are we okay with that? I hate to tell you, but like, this isn't a popular church thought. This isn't a popular thought inside of our churches today. Why? Because it operates under supreme authority of the King of Kings. It only comes down to one thing, what he wants, what God wants, not what you want. What does God want? Are you going to trust him? Are you letting a bunch of other character traits that have been attributed to your brain <laughs> as to who God is, are you letting that inform you or are you letting this inform you? It's just a crazy question to ask yourself. Let's go ahead and read 9, 8 through 9. Somebody else read this, would you? 8 through 9. So they led him to they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate. Saul had been blinded by the encounter, so his companions must lead him by the hand. I can I could park right there for like an hour. <laughs> I mean, there's so much going on right here. And while the city uh, in the city he ate and drank nothing for three days. God's purpose of his blindness was to reinforce the reality of what happened to Saul. As Saul sits in complete darkness, think about this for a second. Close your eyes if you need to. He is alone with his thoughts. And his last visual memory will be what? An encounter with Jesus Christ on the road. It's haunting him. Now his situation was reversed. This is funny. Think about this for a second. Ironically, Saul had been blind spiritually, though he could see physically. Now he's blind physically, so he can see spiritually. Mic drop. No, that's <laughs> just joking. Later, the restoration of Saul's sight. Check this out. It becomes the opportunity for the Lord to build Saul's relationship with the wounded church that he's been murdering, that fears him. That's crazy. Check. You guys are probably wondering what's going on here. But when his eyes are open, Saul will see the church in a new way. And the church will see Saul in a new way. Don't we want this? I want this today. I don't want to go on doing what we're doing until we have this happen. 
church-wide. Spiritually, Paul referred back to this moment numerous times, so evidently it was a major event, both in defense of his commission as, as an apostle, but also, again, as least of the apostles. Undoubtedly, Paul's memory of this day becomes a conversation uh, that's completely, I want you guys to get this, becomes completely his, his water tank to carry around that's never runs dry of the water that he needs to keep motivated to spread the gospel. Did you know that your days prior to Jesus can become this? It becomes your fuel to share the gospel, just like Paul. Undoubtedly. I mean, I know he's thinking this every single day. I'm going to go ahead and read chapters 9, 10 through 16. It goes like this. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and he has seen a vision and a man and, and, and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his, your, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from about from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is. Here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings of sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Clearly, the church has made its way as far as north to Damascus. God gives Ananias a vision with instructions. He would fight a street called Straight. Check this out. This exists today. This street right here, this is, this is uh, in 1946 or 1846. This is in uh, Damascus looking east, and it's this street right here. I don't know if you can see this, but this is Google Maps. It's one mile. See how straight that is? Do you see any other streets like that? They called that straight. This this Roman emperor named, uh, uh, not Hippopotamus, but Hipp his name is Hippodius. His post, Hippodius made the entire grid of the entire city, and he wanted a big, long street, and he called it the street called straight. And it's still there today, half of it's owned by different religious sects, They've put a roof over sections of it and build churches on it. It's crazy. But in these days, it was just a big, long street. And he said, you were going to find a person named Judas, his house. When he found the house, he would meet a man named Saul. Jesus, has, ever, has he ever given you any instructions with real names, real places? Boy, that's pretty specific. It's amazing to watch God at work. Saul is praying for a miracle to regain his sight. Meanwhile, God selects a man to direct him to Saul. Even the names of each dude. It's amazing. Remember this story as you share your concerns with God and ask him for forgiveness and intervention. And then remember that the reason Saul is in his situation was because God made him blind. We don't like to think like that, do we? Finally, take note that the answer to Saul's prayer includes a new mission and a revelation that he's about ready to get his butt kicked, that he's got a lot more suffering to go. How would you react to something like that? The solution are at his disposal. And consider that whatever answer God brings may leave you all the more needing to pray. And, and needing an intervention. Finally, Ananias responds in the way that you guys probably would have, and I would have probably. Yeah, right. I'm not doing it. I've heard of this guy. So despite Ananias' effort to help the Lord with some logic, he says, hey, I guess uh, I, I'm just going to have to do this. So Saul is the chosen instrument of God. So who am I to argue with you? Notice again the lack of choice or free will in any of this, these situations. Never is Saul asked to be, to be a recruiter 
or to be recruited by God. Scripture never describes our relationship with Christ as a personal choice. Yikes. Think about this for a second. It's only God's choice. This is a big doctrinal dividing point for so many churches, and I'm not sitting here saying to you, believer, brothers and sisters, what you should believe. I'm just stating the facts that it's in Scripture. There's, yeah, the tulip, yeah, right? Calvinist, not Calvinist. I'm not not putting any labels on it. I want you to wrestle with this. Is in Scripture the narrative that a personal relationship with Jesus is your choice, or is it God's? I want you to think about that. Send me an email on your thoughts. Saul's future has been set, and it will be including much suffering, as Jesus indicates. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't expect much from Ananias in this transaction? He's not supposed to talk him into anything. He's not going to make him sales pitch. He's not going to ask him to go to church. He's just supposed to do this. Put his hand on. Jesus will do all the talking. With these words, Jesus persuades Ananias to go and attend to Saul. 17, I'm going to read it. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Whoa, right there. Do you hear that? Brother Saul? Whoa. Believing in Jesus can, can make new family members, am I right? Out of murderers. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Woo! And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. Now, we don't really know what that means. Literally, what you see is what you get. Big, figure it out. Could be just scales. Could be really gross. Could be really not gross. It's the way the Lord works. And immediately fell from his eyes, things like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him would continue to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who was in Jerusalem destroyed uh, those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Ananias finds Saul and his words and actions display supreme faith, in my opinion. Man, I could learn a lot from Ananias. He gets a bad rap. First, to even enter Saul's presence. Would you? Secondly, he dresses Saul as brother. Would you? I mean, I Ananias isn't waiting for Saul to prove himself. He goes in and calls him brother. See, that's what Jesus' words do. The Lord has declared he is converted, and therefore Ananias operates with such a presumption. Jesus uses the man Ananias to confer this new calling upon Saul. It's a notable for <laughs> it's it to me it's it's a notable thing to make sure that you understand how big of a nobody Ananias is to do something with somebody. I mean, this is proof positive that he can use y'all. Specifically, Ananias is not an apostle. Jesus converted Saul without the direct involvement of any other apostles, no signs and wonders, no speaking in tongues, no wind. No mir miraculous anything, just a big shining light. No speaking in tongues, yes. Still, God did show himself through miracles nonetheless. The same reason for signs and wonders in every case within Acts is the same thing. Coming to Christ, filling you with the Holy Spirit, punctuating his new season. As Paul regained his sight, his first instinct and desire was what? To go get a Big Mac? Be baptized, man. Man, isn't that the... that's That says a lot right there. He was starving. Three days, no drink, no food. But we see this as an act of obedience. Remember me last week saying the first thing you should do is look for some water? 
Here's another reminder that the first responsibility of a believer is to submit to water baptism as the first, at the very first opportunity. I love that in our own church, that we are just all, we're pumping baptisms every single Sunday, man. And it's because when God's moving in the house, you got to make something, you got to make it public. You got to do something, just like Paul. If they pass, if you pass up this opportunity for water baptism, to me, not to me, but in Scripture, you're running the risk of walking in disobedience. That's not a, some cardinal sin, but why why not make it official? Why not make it public? Having been baptized, Saul then eats and gains back his strength. He spends a few days with his disciples, with the disciples in Damascus. And they're they're like, I could just picture him. He's like, hey man. And the, the disciples like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I was just gonna give you a hug, bro. You know, like flinching, you know, like he reaches for the fork and they think it's a gun, you know, no, it's, it's just me, Paul. I'm one of you now, you know, so for he's preaching has two effects and I'll end with this. It amazes the church that they tried to reconcile what they see with what they have heard about Saul. What's going on? It's kind of like what happened when Kanye gave his life to Christ. <laughs> Everybody's going, what's going on? You know, we try to make sense of all this stuff. You know, it's just, it couldn't be. This can't be happening. Secondly, his preaching confounds the Jews in their arguments over the claims of Christianity. The greatest threat to the church has become its greatest defender overnight. The threat has now become the defense. Crazy, right? But naturally, this stirs up, and this is the end for next week. I hope you'll come back for B. Is now we march square into a new pattern, a new, exciting, elevated level of persecution that's about ready to mount onto Paul from his people, the Jews. This stirs up the Jews so much against the church that he finds himself in a bloody pulp almost every single day. And the target number one, enemy number one, is again Paul. But now the Jews are the ones instigating the beatings. The very people he was, he was persecuting are now beating him up. You guys, I got a couple little uh, reflection questions. You guys have been so so awesome going through all of this with me. Thank you so much for keeping attentive. I know it's my, my wife says my voice is very drony, puts you to sleep, but uh, my reflection questions are, are as follows. Looking back at my life, can I see the evidence of God's sovereignty? I know I can, without a doubt. I've never had too much, but I've never had too little. I can trust him. Number two, do I fight against God or for him? Look out, because you might be fighting, you think, for him, but you're actually persecuting him. It's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? What does Paul and Ananias' interaction tell you about God? I'm not going to tell you what the answer is. That's, that's not a pop quiz. What does that tell you about how much God cares about you? Number four. When I pray, do I remember that even my needs are produced by God? I don't know that a lot of people believe that. I don't know. But try that. Next time you ask God for an intervention, just remember that the, the need, the, the angst that you have, isn't some demonic thing, isn't something evil. It's actually produced by God. It's actually from him, the need that you have for resources, the need that you have for reconciliation, the need that you have for relationship, that's from him. Why do I say that? Because that's in this story. Number five, in Scripture, is a relationship with Christ ever described as my choice or God's choice? It's a big question, isn't it? Got to... You guys maybe have a little flesh popping up there saying, it's free will. I make my own decisions in this thing. 
I just want to give you a little bit of some food for thought as we depart and come back next week. Maybe you won't come back next week, but I hope that you will. Think about, yeah, think about, and it, I hope you will make the decision to come back to the class next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, so much for this Bible study. Thanks for these studying uh, brothers and sisters of the Bible. I pray that you would be that your glory would be manifested through our life, that you would make known what the truth is, and we would submit. We just we just submit to you. Stop kicking and screaming. Stop bucking like a bronco out in the wilderness, but just settle down and live in your presence and walk in step with you, even if it brings brings on the persecution and the beatings. God, we want, we want to acknowledge that our needs in this room are a production of you. So let us see it rightly as the, the outcome of our prayers and the answering of our prayers aren't necessarily always just having our needs met. But it's to be closer to you. More glory to you. May we be a song of worship lifted up to you in this place. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.